Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Hello, this is Stephen Adams, Global Council Senior Director in London. Today I'm talking with GC's Chief Economist, Gregor Irwin, who's just come back from a week uh, on the road in North America. And Gregor, I want to focus on the conversations you were having, uh, chiefly with institutional investors, um, but also with um, with, with a range of investment funds um, in, uh, in, in New York in particular. Um, you were there to talk chiefly about Brexit. Obviously, the conversations raised, ranged uh, more widely than that. But just start by give us, giving us a sense of where you felt Brexit sits in the kind of wider risk landscape for the kinds of American investors you were talking to. Uh, well, Stephen, I mean, I think there's a few things uh, I can say about that. First of all, um, it really depends on exactly what sort of investor you are, um, the extent of your exposure uh, to the UK, uh, what sort of exposure uh, you have, and indeed what sort of opportunities you're looking uh, for. But but I, I was surprised, I suppose I was surprised um, both by... Uh, the extent of interest, the extent of understanding, the sophisticated analysis that many investors already have uh, around Brexit. Um, I was also, it was interesting to see how, just how many investors view Brexit in the context of broader political risk in Europe. Uh, And I I don't mean at a European level, I actually mean at the level of uh, different countries within Europe. Um, Just say a bit more about that. You mean as one variant of a wider phenomena of economic nationalism, political populism? I mean, is that the the rubric? Yeah, uh, to to some extent. um, What um, many uh, American investors have noticed is is clearly we've got um, quite a lot of political uncertainty in a number of uh, EU member states just now. That's as true in France, Germany, Italy and Spain uh, as it is in Poland and, and some smaller member states. And each of them uh, has um, uncertainty to do with the stability of coalitions or to do with elections or transitions of power or in the case of France to do with political protests. Um, political risks that are manifesting themselves in, in, in very different ways. And of course Brexit is uh, a form of political risk from the perspective of investors, which is quite different from any of those circumstances. Uh, So, yeah, investors trying to understand if there are any commonalities, populism, uh, the the, the struggle of of mainstream parties to maintain a grip on the political agenda. These are common themes. Um, uh, But but also, you know, some very uh, distinct... Uh, circumstances in, in, in each of those cases. But, but quite often that's where the conversation starts and that's what many investors have become focused on. Brexit's been around for a couple of years but actually political risk is increasing in other European countries as well. Although one of my arguments was that in many cases we can see some upsides to those um, uh, other the, the types of political risk that we see in those other countries. Okay, so we'll, we'll, focus, we'll focus on the upside in a little bit. I mean, inevitably, I would imagine the short the questions you were getting were as much as anything about some of the short term exposure, and I guess in particular the question of uh, you know no deal um, outcome in March or shortly thereafter. Um, 
what what were you picking up from investors and I suppose more importantly what were you advising them in terms of what you expect uh, on that question of short-term um, continuity in March and yeah, so um, you know, what, what, one thing we know from speaking to our clients anywhere is uh, clearly that the, the detail of what's happening in the British Parliament is quite rightly lost uh, on many people, and, and, and who could blame them? It, it, is, uh, it, it is very particular to the, the workings of the British uh, Parliament. Uh, but what people clearly are focused on is the 29th of March. Um, they understand that a deal has to be approved then or an extension of Article 50 is required. Uh, they have a good understanding of, of, of the politics, of the issues, um, the problem of uh, dealing with the Irish backstop, uh, ensuring no hard border in Ireland. Um, uh, but just as importantly, I think most people also understand that, that this is not the end of the process, that this is a very important and significant uh, milestone in the process, which um, if it goes according to the UK government's plan, will lead to the UK leaving the EU uh, either at or soon after the 29th of March. Um, but, but then we're into a whole uh, new phase of the negotiation, which if you're, if you're an investor with a you know, three, four, five year plus time horizon, actually what, what you're focused on is what the outcome is of that negotiation. Yeah. You're less concerned about what's going to happen to Sterling over the next six months you're more focused on the business environment three, four, five years from now. Yeah. And presumably um, when, I mean, one of the things that strikes me often about talking to uh, investors from outside of the European region is that when they, when, they, when they think about the UK and they are thinking through precisely that, uh, that slightly medium-term framework, um, their minds inevitably drift from or move uh, from the, the questions of Brexit and Brexit modalities to some of the other medium-term questions in, in British politics, and inevitably there is the question of uh, the, the the durability of the May government and what might replace it. How much of that did you find yourself talking about in the states? And I guess it, you know, in particular, the question of whether a, uh, a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government is a is a is a material prospect in the in the UK. Uh, yeah, a lot of interest in that. I actually would say. Um uh, the, the interest of investors extends it extends even further than that. And let, let, let me try and explain that to you. I mean, first of all, um, I, I think what's happened in the British Parliament, particularly over the past three months, and the approach taken by the British government, for those investors who've been following it fairly closely, there's a degree of incredulity uh, about what is happening. And I, I, I think it's, ra- it's raising questions in some investors' minds uh, about the nature of the UK's political system uh, and where UK politics is heading. Uh, but also, um, if you like, um, what, what, what the prospects for good government are uh, in the next phase after this Brexit deal, um, let's assume for the sake of argument that it's approved and the, and the UK leaves the EU, uh, what happens then? Um, for, we, we've noticed for some time, actually, not just in the US, but speaking to investors elsewhere, that clearly there's a lot of interest in Jeremy Corbyn, an interest in Labour, um, for the simple reason that Labour looks electable, Labour's policy platform is unorthodox from the perspective of many investors with issues like rail nationalisation, uh, water uh, utility nationalisation, uh, labour market reform, and so on. I, I think what I noticed this time round uh, in New York in particular 
um, was that there's a recognition that, that, that actually what's happening to Labour is important, but actually equally what happens next in the Conservative Party is extremely important right. because the next Prime Minister uh, is, is almost likely, uh, almost certain to be a Conservative Prime Minister uh, who will enter office at some point in 2019 and they will face uh, a, a, a hugely difficult um, uh, problem of, of reshaping the domestic policy agenda alongside taking forward these Brexit negotiations and, and that creates uncertainty for, for investors. Right, and it seems, uh, I mean, we, we, have a, we have a Labour manifesto from 2017, a manifesto put together by the, um, the, the, the strategic team who are leading Labour now or will probably lead Labour into the next election. Um, but as you say, what we almost certainly don't know is what the manifesto for that next Conservative leader might potentially look like. And given that, you know, it's, um, it's going to inevitably be a Conservative politician to some extent positioning against Theresa May and Theresa May's legacy, that seems to be a real gap in our knowledge of where British politics is potentially going. It's a huge gap, and when advising people on this, you know, I think, I think we've got to be up front uh, and, uh, and just, just explain that to people. Um, look, what, what do we know? Um, we, we know that Theresa May, uh, whatever happens, is likely to leave office at some point in 2019. That certainly has to be the central scenario. We know that um, Conservative MPs will choose a shortlist of two and then it'll be Conservative Party members who then decide who the next Conservative Prime Minister is. Um, they will almost certainly uh, choose somebody who's been a, a fairly clear supporter of Brexit over the past two years. Um, beyond that, uh, actually, um, I think we'll probably find that domestic policy issues uh, get aired in that process, but they don't get the treatment that they would normally deserve in a leadership uh, contest. So I think there is unusually high uncertainty about domestic policy as a result. Um, it, it really does matter because I think if you look at Theresa May's domestic agenda, there are two things that I was explaining to people about that last week. One, one is it's actually in some ways it's not typically conservative. Mm, yeah. um, she, she's been quite interventionist in some ways. She's adopted some Labour policies. She, she's wanted, she wants to adopt a much more um, uh, hands-on approach to screening foreign direct investment, for example, clearly an issue uh, for some uh, investors. Um, uh, uh, but she's been constrained in her ability to implement that domestic policy agenda, and there's a whole set of issues stacking up that need addressing uh, after, after Brexit in the next 12 months, two years. Um, so um, for many medium-term, long-term investors, yes, uh, the next uh, Prime Minister and, and their agenda, the domestic agenda, as well as the approach to Brexit, the next phase, that's really important. And I guess this reinforces the point that you have to see the, the potential impact of a, of a Corbyn Labour Party in two dimensions. What, one is, of course, the prospect of it achieving government, uh, either in a majority or a minority form, but the other is the imprint that it leaves on a conservative agenda, a conservative agenda designed essentially to neutralise the challenge that it represents. And as you say, since 2015, actually, since, I mean, even, even, even May was in some respects a response to the Miliband agenda of 2015, and we would expect, to some extent, the next Conservative leader to be responding to Corbyn in some way, and some of that will be by co-opting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look, look. If you if if you're an investor and you and you own, 
you know, a slice of uh, a UK energy utility or a UK uh, water firm, uh, then the fact that um, a Conservative government has introduced an energy price cap in response to uh, a previous Labour policy um, is, is a hugely significant development. And of course, you'd be looking ahead to the next election and thinking, OK, what, what would uh, a Conservative, the next Conservative Prime Minister do in the case of water regulation or indeed the railways uh, in response to that, that Labour agenda? So, yeah, that's exactly how we approach it analytically. Um, and those are the sorts of issues that, that um, foreign investors are, are increasingly focused on. Okay, so you said before you got the, um, the toughest Brexit question of them all, which is the, which is the question about opportunities. Um, what answer do you give when you're asked where the upside is from an investment point of view? Yeah, if you're a long-term investor, um, then you, know, you, you, can, you can leave to one side, as I said, the, the sort of swings in sterling and, and whatever short-term opportunities may come from that. Instead, I think, I think you, you're better off focusing on sectors. Um, and, and there, uh, it, it really depends on what sort of Brexit um, you, you think is likely to emerge from the second phase of negotiations. Now, we know that what emerges um, in the withdrawal agreement, um, assuming it's eventually signed and implemented, uh, uh, and the political declaration that goes with that, 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 to some extent that will constrain the choices for the future relationship. But actually, the real negotiating still needs to be done. And that next um, Prime Minister will play an instrumental role in that negotiation. Um, if you and, and really it comes down to a trade-off between uh, market access and regulatory flexibility. And if, if you take the view that actually the government ultimately is likely to favour regulatory flexibility over market access, then yeah, you, could, you, you can identify some sectors where there is potentially a long-run upside from regulatory flexibility. And the sort of places to look, the sort of sectors that we were discussing are fast-growing, fast-developing uh, sectors involving new technologies where regulation is um, uh, only just uh, being introduced. And uh, there may be some opportunities from from uh, uh, investments in the UK where, where regulatory flexibility is retained. But I shouldn't, you know, I, I think it's, I shouldn't underestimate just how hard it is to build a, a robust case now from where we sit now, yeah. looking ahead to the future as to where those opportunities can be found. But of course, that's what investors want. They want, they want to understand where the opportunities are amid all the, the risk, and it's easy to identify the risk. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, to the extent that you took away an impression of this, I mean, what was your what was your sense of how bullish or bearish ultimately North American investors are on the UK uh, looking further ahead? I mean, do, do, is your sense that that, that we, we have a, the UK has a sort of fundamental problem now with the external perception of political risk, instability, um, uncertainty, or do you think that? there's a sense that there's a kind of longer-term investment case for the UK that can survive this period of turbulence? I think there is a fundamental problem, but I'm not sure how long-lasting it will be. Um, the fundamental problem is that, that you know, the people that really need to be following what's happening in the UK closely, um, many of them 
as I say, are quite astonished as, as to what they've seen happening over the past uh, few weeks and months. Uh, and that has led to some extent to a reassessment um, of what that tells them about the UK political system and the political environment that they will be, that they need to commit to for the long term. Um, the, 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 the caveat is, uh, is I'm not sure how, how long lasting yeah. that will be. Um, if there is a withdrawal agreement and if the process is orderly, uh, then yeah, it's possible that there'll be a further reassessment and that people will look again with fresh eyes at the next phase of the negotiation um, and, and how that's handled in Parliament uh, and perhaps uh, we'll see a bit of a reversion uh, in perceptions uh, uh, for the UK. Um, but as but you say, there's also going to be a question of the domestic political fallout and the way in which domestic politics ultimately play out in terms of the election of an of a a, a, a subsequent government. Absolutely. So, you know, I wouldn't underestimate just how difficult uh, this uh, might be. Um, But I I don't think it's impossible, um, but it certainly uh, puts a lot of onus on the next government. And I'm assuming there's going to be a change in government and we'll have a new Conservative Prime Minister at some point in 2019. The onus will be on uh, that person and that government uh, to actually, you know, begin to try and address the perception problem that has been created over the past few months, and actually, uh, you know, uh, among other things, that that means working closely with uh, foreign investors, taking them seriously, um, re- really sort of making sure that when the UK government's credibility is on the line in future, some of the statements that the government makes, that actually they, they recognise. Uh, that they can they can damage their credibility if they if they don't stand by. Do you think there's a recognition in uh, in Whitehall in the UK's uh, kind of international representation of how badly that perception problem has hit? Uh, I think I think yes, but I I think I think that the, the calculation right at the top. In Whitehall at the moment is that that reputation will need to suffer um, if that is what it takes in order to get a deal through Parliament uh, by whatever means is necessary. That's the sort of mindset which exists in uh, uh, Whitehall just now. And and actually, I suppose you 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 can see there um, this the sort of the, the basis for trying to redeem that credibility which is around the exceptional nature of the circumstances that the UK finds itself in just now but, but you, 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 it does require a bit of hard work and it will require hard work to re-engage with investors and to, to make the case as to why um, policy making is going to be done in a more conventional manner, a more transparent manner, a more orderly manner um, uh, in, in this next phase uh, both when it comes to um, the next round of Brexit negotiations, but also the domestic policy agenda. Great. You can read um, Gregor's commentary on the Global Council website, which is www.global-council.co.uk. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.